Henry Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had a Stephen James endorsement already our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels is with us, the author of Playing Saints. The Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil, and uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there, they're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. Years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate outside of Harvard College. And the 2015 Carol Award for Debut Novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay? This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. I have got another wonderful guest this week, uh, and that is Marissa Schrock. And I just realized, Marissa, that the little URL that I sent you is a pun, sort of, because it okay. says Clint Schrock. Oh, it does, it, doesn't it? <laughs> which sounds like Clint Rock, which is the setting of, of the uh, story by the same name. So that's, that's unintentional funny. dad humor. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. You see, when you're a pastor, especially a Baptist pastor and a dad, it's it's bad, the, the puns that spin out of that. <laughs> Um, so let's, let's get right into, uh, talking about kind of your history, your experience, your story and where you're, and where you're at now, uh, as an author, I met okay. you, um, it was either in Indianapolis or St. Louis or Dallas. Cause it was at an ACFW conference. It was, I, I think it was Indianapolis. Well, no, okay. maybe, no, it was St. Louis. It was St. Louis. I know we went out to eat with uh, our agent, and then later on, I couldn't find an open restaurant in that whole city. Like it was a like the Walking Dead ghost town situation. It was. I I didn't. That wasn't one of my favorite conferences. Although it was <laughs> nice meeting you and your wife. Right. You know, worth the drive. You know. Um. Yeah. So so you and I have the same agent, which wouldn't be weird because that's the only reason that we ever met each other. Right. Um, but I want to run down a list of other odd ways in which my story looks a lot like your story, which is okay. which is weird. Um, mm-hmm. We both we both quickly were able to find an agent um, querying yeah. very few people, which is a strange thing to begin with. You know, you see on Twitter, oh, I'm querying the six thousand seven hundred twelve person, and 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 I feel almost guilty. You know that uh-huh. that I didn't have to go through that. We found I this feel the same way. <laughs> you know, yeah, and which is a weird a weird way to feel, especially later on now that I don't even have an agent. But the guilt, I, you know, again, Baptist, so it's it's hanging out. Um, we have the same age, had the same agent. Uh, we both had manuscripts that got sent out, and the first publisher to consider them bought them. Right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> We both uh, had sequels after our contracts ran out, sequels to that debut novel that we wanted to put out. And in both cases, the publisher said, no, thanks. Right. Um, and this is fun, right? Going through like. Yes, one of the- it is. It's kind of weird, actually. <laughs> we we uh, both were. This is weird. Finalists in the same category, the debut novel category at uh-huh. in the Carol Award. 
uh, and neither of us won. That's right. And, and we were only a, a year up. We would have been in the same. We would have been against each other, except that um, the publisher pushed off your release date and it was in January. So you were just barely that next year. Right. Uh, so we wound up. Uh, we would have. Who, who won your year? Do you remember? Uh, it was actually Linda Brooks Davis. She was a friend of mine. So I was. I was sad I didn't win, but I was so happy for her that it didn't bother me as much as it would have maybe if it hadn't been a person that I was friends with. Okay. That's, that's nice to say. That's nice to say and tell yourself, you know, in the moment. I'm kidding. I, I don't <laughs> doubt you one bit. Um, and, and, you know, what's funny to me is I only remember the person who, who uh, won my year because I play that little clip at the beginning of my podcast every time. And I'm like, ah. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. So then both of us actually parted ways with that same agent. Uh, yes. And both of us then did put out that sequel um, anyway and did it as an indie book. Yes, that's right. Now, your books are YA exclusively or... You know, honestly, I have more adult readers of that series than probably YA. And it, some of it, I think, has to do with the subject matter. You know, it's, you know, it's pretty serious. And but there are a lot of elements that really seemed when I started to make it fit more of a um, young adult market. So, you okay. know, you have the futuristic dystopian story of, you know, a girl who's refusing to comply with her country's mandatory pregnancy termination law. And then there's a um, revolution brewing. So, you know, I had some of those elements um, that at the time it was published were were popular with young adults. So that's why we went that particular direction with Mark. But even with those books that were popular in a, um, I don't I hate the secular sacred dichotomy, but in the, in the yes. ABA, I'll say, yes. um, that had those elements, adults seem to be reading them at least as much as kids anyway, right? Yes, that's true. So there's crossover appeal and all this kind of thing. Yes. Um, So let me, I I do have actual questions for you. I don't want to just like, like this was, this is your life or whatever. Um, So what what was, uh, (laughs) you did a nice overview. You, you did your homework. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was easy. I just had to think about like what happened to me and I'm like, Oh yeah, that's the same (laughs) thing that happened to both of us. Um, Which, and I feel like it's a very strange story, honestly, from the beginning with the, with the easy uh, getting an agent to the end. It's odd. Very odd that that uh-huh. two people should should intersect in that anyways. Uh, but what's going to be interesting is how things have played out differently and how we've learned different things. And therefore, what I can learn from you and what my listeners can learn from you. Um, okay. I want to talk about going indie. Uh, you've done a few books now right. that way, right? Yes, I have. How many? So um, I have done two full-length novels and one novella as an indie author. And I'm currently working on starting a new series that's not young adult. It's a series of cozy mysteries set in small town, Indiana in a farming community. And so I'm kind of right now going a little bit different direction, but I am still going indie with those books. Well, what has been different from what you expected about putting out indie material? Well, gosh, I think that, one of the difficult things is that it's maybe not as easy as Mm. people think it is. Maybe people don't think it's easy, but you don't automatically like, Oh yeah, I'm going to sell a bunch of copies, you know, because it's not, it's not out there in bookstores. Um, You really have to do a lot of promoting yourself. And I mean, that's probably been the hardest, 
most difficult thing for me because I'm not naturally a person who wants to say, Ooh, read my book. Look Mm -hmm. at me. This is, you know, but yet there's a balance of letting people know that the book's out there, but you don't want to get over into the (laughs) icky part of (laughs) self-promotion. There's a fine line. I don't know if you if you heard. Um, I don't want to presume anything about whether or not you listen to this this podcast, but uh, I had Noah Filipiak on a little while ago, and Noah was about to like that day launch his first indie book, and uh-huh. he he had uh-huh. I mean just great hopes and dreams, and I and I have nothing but great expectations for him. But at the same time, I, I wanted to say, oh, you sweet naive you know, a handsome little sparrow uh, because of, you know, kind of the the way he was talking about the the idea of indie versus, you know, what you have to deal with and contend with in, in traditional. Did you, so you found it to be more difficult right. um, versus kind of this undercurrent there is today of, oh, don't worry about uh, a publisher. You can put it out. You can, you can do everything yourself. It's simple. It's not simple, and you have to kind of make a um, make a peace with yourself that hey, I may put this out, mm-hmm. and I may not sell that many copies, and you know you have to kind of just say to yourself, look, God's going to take this book where He's going to take it. He'll help me find the readers. I'm just going to put out the best possible book that I can put out. This is the option that I have right now. And I'm going to write for the joy of writing. And it's not that I don't believe that I would ever be successful, but I think that with indie, you have to have this mindset that it's going to take a lot more time than you want it to. And it may take 10 books before mm. it takes off or it may never take off. You know, so I think there's, there's this misconception that you're going to put out this one book and you're just going to show those people, you know, those traditional publishers. And I don't know that I ever felt that way. I really felt an obligation to my readers to finish the series I'd started because I had planted certain seeds in that first book that, you know, I wanted to see the, see it play out. I wanted to finish the story because I didn't want to be one of those writers that just, leaves people hanging. And then, you know, as Stephen James talks about in his book, keeping promises to the readers in his story, Trump structure book, you want to keep your promises to the readers. Well, I made a lot of promises in my first book that really pointed to a series. So that's why I went indie. It wasn't easy. I don't think I ever felt like, yeah, I'm going to show that publisher that didn't pick up my second book. But so you can't go into it with that mindset, I guess I would say. Did you ever consider looking for like a smaller, like boutique type uh, publisher to go with? Or did you just think, ah, let me just try this and and run with that? I just thought, eh, let me try it. Because honestly, I didn't think that, you know, with the sales not meeting the publisher's expectations, I mean, no one was going to take a look at my book and be like, yes, let's publish the sequel to a novel that didn't do as well as the publisher wanted it to do. Right. And, and a novel that belongs to the competition. Exactly. So we're going to, uh, we'll, we'll help build their sales of the original. Yeah. And it, so I, I silly, sillily, is that a word? <laughs> Stupidly maybe. <laughs> it's uh, not right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I made it one now. Yeah. Uh, I told our agent, our shared agent, I want you to try to sell this to somebody else. They might yeah. do it. And that was dumb. And she, and she, I think she just did it because she wanted to try whatever options there were. But right. at the end of the day, I would have, looking back, I wouldn't have blamed her if she would have said, no, this is going to make me look, 
like I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, right. And she actually recommended to me, you should go indie. Mm. Like when we found out that, you know, the publisher wasn't going to publish the sequel to my first book, The First Principle, she said, I think you need to indie publish. And she kind of gave her blessing for that. And so it, from that point, it was full speed ahead. I made my publishing company. And within the next year, I had two two novels and a novella out. So Now, she also told me, you know what she told me? No. Um, she said, you know, Marissa Schrock? <laughs> She's gone indie and it's working well for her. Maybe you should think about that for this book. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know how much of it is people were looking at sales mm-hmm. uh, and going, wow, for a huge high profile publisher, those are some uh, not overly impressive sales. And how much of it was just like, because I had her send out a book called Clinch, okay. uh, which at the time wasn't a YA version. It was a much okay. less interesting, much weaker uh, idea for a a standard suspense title, Um, but not the sequel along with this sequel. So that if people were like a sequel to it now, they'd still have something in their hand right? uh, and they didn't pick up either. Um, And I don't know if one's poisoned the other or, or what the case. Um, I know that uh, a guy who you've heard of and, and anyone who is into Christian writing and, and publishing and who knows anything about agents, an agent that you've heard of said to me when he heard what the sales were, he was like, those are, (laughs) those are just tepid enough to scare people off. Um, And what's wild to me is there was one person in particular who had about the same sales Uh and the same publisher said, let's just keep trying. And now they've picked up and she's doing well. So the same publisher might go with you and keep running, but it's, it's what it's like. If you have a job, you can get a job easier. If you don't have a job, it's really hard, which is counterintuitive and kind of silly. Right. Uh, I I have uh, indie published before and after uh, my traditional books. Uh Uh, And I've done it eight times with my own stuff. And and then a couple times for other people. So when clinch comes out as a paperback, that'll be number nine. And for okay. me, two of them bombed. Four of them were pretty okay. You know, they didn't uh-huh. they didn't blow my hair back, but you know, they were okay. And two of them absolutely killed it. And uh-huh. I, I think that's pretty common. You know, that's kind of what you can expect. And that's really what traditional right. publishers expect going in. Exactly. So most of these aren't earning back their advance. We're going to just throw all these things against the wall and a few of them will stick. Right. So you just have to keep writing books and <laughs> do the best you can. So how how many have stuck for you? I mean, have you, have you been able to build more in that series? Um, In the Emancipation Warrior series, which includes the first principle, the liberation and the pursuit. um, Basically, no, I'm done with that series. And I wouldn't say that at this point, any of them have stuck. Um, I think the biggest, one of the biggest obstacles I face with this book is the series is that the covers don't match. So I have the publisher that went one direction (laughs) and and I went another direction that I felt fit my vision. It's so funny. The next question I had jotted down was <laughs> covers so different question mark. And I was going to say is, would you have wanted what you wanted was to see the same basic thing on the first one? Right. So eventually when the rights revert back to me, I'll put a new cover on it and I'll be able to promote the books as a whole, because right now I think it's confusing. And I think that hurts sales. Mm -hmm. Like if somebody hears through word of mouth, oh, this is a really good book, then, you know, they go and they look and they see, oh, that series doesn't match. That author doesn't look like she knows what she's doing. 
but yet I didn't want to keep repeating something that I didn't feel worked very well. Right. So I went a different direction when I indie published the rest of the series. I got it. So basically until I get the rights back, mm. it's not going to match. And I think that hampers sales. I think the other thing is too, that um, Christian YA isn't selling very well. That's true. And you, you've seen that as well. And I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, well, I sort of do, but I, at the same time, it, it saddens me um, because I've read a lot of the secular YA and it, it just, it hurts my heart. Mm. Some of the things that it's out there. The things um, that are trying to be normalized right now through YA in the yes, ABA world. Exactly. It, it's that's horrifying. It. I, I won't let my son's nine. I'm not going to let him read this kind of trash. That's, that's mainstream right now. Right. Yeah. I mean, I just finished a book and I was like, really? They had to go that direction. So, you know, it, it saddens me that it's Christian YA is not selling. Now, YA put out by Christian publishers that isn't overtly Christian is doing okay. And I was told when I was pitching another YA book that I have that I haven't, um, I'm not ready to publish yet because I want to focus my attention elsewhere. But if I ever do, it's not as overtly Christian, but yet there's, but it is written from a Christian worldview. So, um, yeah, but I, I don't, feel like I need to apologize from for my writing that it's overtly Christian because that's my worldview and it's that's just me. So you know I've heard that positive pop they dig, I'd rather be buried in wet concrete. <laughs> yeah. Steve Taylor. Yeah. Um you know I, I want to ask you, did you push back on that cover or did you just go, ah, eh, they probably know what they're doing? At the time it didn't feel right to me, but when it came to me, they basically were telling me in the explanation of the cover, it was done. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's a big surprise, isn't it? I expected mm -hmm. this back and forth, like here's some mock-ups of 10 different ideas, which one should we develop? And it was like, yeah. here's two covers, pick one, bud. Um, and I didn't even have that. It was okay. just, it, it was done when it well, came. And to it's an illustration. So they paid someone to, to go through some, some real work to, to paint that or however they prepared it. Um, right. But it, to me, what it looks like, and I remember thinking this the first time I saw it was it reminded me of YA books when I was a teenager. <laughs> like it had like a very like a, the fact that you see the person's face full on. That seems to have kind of fallen out of fashion. Now you see like nose down or just neck down. Um, right. and, and, it, and it had I don't know. It, and I, my first thought was, oh, that's kind of cool that that sort of retro like mm -hmm. 80s, 90s YA book mm -hmm. cover is coming back around. And, and uh -huh. had it, you would have been on the absolute forefront. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I mean, it's very, it's very professional, but I just, like I said, I wanted to go a different direction. And so, yes, they, they don't match, but what, what else do you do? <laughs> you know, unless you get the exact same designer, you're not going to get that continuity. Who did the, so. the second and third books covers? Uh, Anita Carroll at Race Point. They look very good. They, they have a, a very... Um, they're, they're not super CGI looking, but they're very, mo not modern, very, uh, futuristic looking in a, in a very modern way. Right. She did, a, she did a great job. I, I would recommend her as a cover designer. A lot of the stuff I see, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of indie, you know, dystopian and futuristic stuff. And a lot of it looks like, um, that like really early lawnmower man era virtual reality kind of vibe. Uh -huh. And, and uh -huh. it's hard to avoid, I think, if there is computer generated anything and you don't have a million dollars. Right. But somehow, it, yeah, it comes off very 
uh, it, the story feels so much bigger looking at the second and third books. Yes. And I, I mean, I, I think in a way that it, it does, it is big. The story does get bigger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it was interesting. My designer, I mean, some designers don't do this, but she actually wanted to read the manuscript oh, cool. for the liberation, which was the sequel to the first principle. So she read it. And when she read the book, she knew exactly what image she wanted to use on the cover. So that was extremely helpful that she had read the whole thing and she knew what was going to work. Now, I don't know if you even want to talk about this. And if you don't, I'll just clip this out. But uh, okay. you you and I have one other thing in common, which is that we both got, um, I don't want to say dumped, but I want to say when when we parted ways with the publisher, I don't know about you, okay. but I had already long started a search for someone else. I, I sensed things were not working and, okay. and, you know, I've, I've never been a guy to sit there and go, let's just keep trying the same thing. I always want to change things up to a fault. Okay. But it was that said, when I opened uh, the envelope and there was that letter, when I saw the, when I saw the return address, I was like, oh, this is this. But, uh-huh. um, to me, so, so you said that you got a face to face and it was the first night of a conference. I did. And, and I have to say, our agent was between a rock and a hard place because she knew that she was going to be sending that letter to me like a week, two weeks after ACFW, mm-hmm. the breakup letter from the agency. And so she had she had to decide, do I pretend like everything's okay with Marissa or do I just tell her mm. what's going on? There's been a shakeup. We're purging our client list and she's not going to make the purge. Right. The purge. <laughs> the purge. Yes. And so she, she was very honest with me and she told me what was going on and you know, that was that. And so then, so then I, this was at dinner, like you said, the first night. So then I had to go do a book signing. Oh, wow. <laughs> because I was there for the Carol award and you know, my book had finaled and, and uh, the publisher was so nice because they, I finaled and another one of their authors finaled. And so they put together this book signing for, you know, for us and they were giving away free books. They, you know, they gave away a bunch of our books and for another one of their authors who was at the conference and which was just wonderful of them to do. Um, because I think they were the only publisher that was giving away that many books in the marketplace. Had had they already passed on the sequel at that point? Yes, they had. And at that point I was just about to release the third and final book in the series. So I'd released the second book, the companion novella, that's about another character. And then the next book was going to be coming out in October after the conference in September, or was it August that year? I don't remember. I think it was August that year. So yeah, I, I mean, I found out and I was like, Oh, I had to put on a happy face and go do a book signing. My, but really what my point is, it's a kind thing that she did ripping off the bandaid because it would have been easy to just sit there through the week, like everything is cool. Yeah. And so I, I don't fault her at all for that. I mean, I, I appreciate her honesty. So I, there was no hard, no hard feelings about that, but it did kind of cast this pall over the whole weekend. You know, here I am so excited. My book might win a Carol. And so then I find out that. (laughs) Now my situation was very similar in that I had actually, um, submitted the the two book proposals I talked about okay. to my publisher. They had read a first refusal, of course, uh-huh. and 
they sat next to me at the table, you know, right by the stairs through the gala, uh-huh. through the Carol Awards. And uh, I find out, whatever, a week after I get home, no, not only are they not doing this, you guys are, you guys are dunsies, man. This is done. Oh, man. Um, so I'm going, I mean, you were giving them the chance to kind of look for another agent because that's a great place to do it. Well, There's, you know, these, um, at that point though, I was kind of like, well, I think I'm just going to go ahead with the indie thing. And I don't think that I want to find another agent right now. Okay. My, my, my thought afterward was I had that, you know, I, I flew down there uh-huh. and went and paid for a hotel, this, this whole thing and gave up, you know, almost a week of my time. Right. I could have been looking for another publisher and yeah. that's a wonderful place to do it. Exactly. Um, so yeah, it, it really irked me. And I thought that was funny that that's a, a place where our stories kind of diverge, where mm-hmm. the agent was like, no, no, I'm going to be upfront and honest. Right. Um, and I, my assumption that they knew I think is is a very safe assumption. Probably, um, yeah. But let's not let it get weird. We'll, you know, we'll let you know after you're back home, and we never <laughs> see you again. Um, awkward. It, it, yeah, yeah. Well, it would have been more awkward, I guess, socially if they would have said we're not publishing more of your books. But good luck tonight. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Definitely. But I would have appreciated that. Uh-huh. And, and I think the weird epilogue is that our agent, you know, there was more of a purge and she's not even like there anymore. Right. So, right. you know, she got caught up in that whole thing too. I, I think it was a real hard couple of years for Christian fiction. It was. And, you know, it, that stuff happens. I, I don't think that I got dealt a bad hand or anything. No, I just think, I just think it's something that happened. And I think that, you know, I, I just, through all this, I feel like, God's had it. And, you know, after, you know, those disappointments of being, you know, let go by the agency, not winning the Carol, I did take a little bit of time off. I took the rest of, well, basically I released my third book, The Pursuit. And I said, I'm taking a sabbatical the rest of 2016. And then I just kind of picked back up the beginning of 2017 with some new projects. And I think that you know, I kind of felt like at the end of that year that God was just pruning me <laughs> like, okay, we're going to snip, snip, snip here. And, you know, I just think that in the end, in the trajectory of my whole career, this is just going to be one part of it. And hopefully it will continue to get better from here. Yeah. And, and what's funny is, you know, God's timing where you'd, you'd like to have seen it backwards. If, if you're anything uh-huh. like me, where you're like, yeah, I got, I, I did some growing of an audience indie. Uh-huh. And then later on they were like, Hey, you need to come publish with us. And I got a little bit yeah, grabby with the whole thing and, uh-huh. and you know, taking the wheel and saying, no, 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 we're going to go right for the top. Uh, and in the words of uh, Nathan Lane on Mouse Hunt, there's only one place you can go from there, and that's down, baby, down. Uh, <laughs> but what's frustrating is, you know, both of us having – I mean, the, the Carol Award is not the the Christie Award as far as um, – yeah, the amount of prestige I- attached to it. But it is a yeah. fairly big deal, and a lot of people submit. A lot of people submit. They they're, they need like a zillion readers every year. And so right. to get f- a finalist – and you know, even though you didn't win, I didn't win, you know, your book is good to see right. a ton of very positive and no negative critical reviews. I know my book was good. Um, right. I read your I, I haven't read your your indie stuff. I apologize, but I did read the first principle uh, uh-huh. and it's good. 
I mean, your book is good. And then Thank you. you go, okay, there are all these other factors that were out of my hands. Yes. And you have to remind yourself they weren't out of God's hands. And so, right. you know, I, I got to remind myself every once in a while, hey, you stop being bitter about that. <laughs> Why does that taste in your mouth? Right. Let, let me just ask some questions about um, kind of the logistics uh, for people who may publish themselves. Okay. Um, how do you go about putting your stuff out? I noticed that you're on like everything. You know, I can get your eBooks on my Kobo because I have like three Kobos like everyone okay. does or uh, through iTunes, you know, and I assume you have a, a service that kind of does all all that or are you actually going through and submitting files to all these little services um well i only put my books four places uh, amazon um the kindle the nook kobo and ibooks and so it it really doesn't take that much time to do that so i just did them all myself i had to set up oh. all the accounts through my publishing company and so there are services that will do that but i i just opted not to do that because it, it's really not a big deal are they available as paperbacks or just ebooks? You can get them on paperback through Amazon. Okay. So did you do it with CreateSpace or Ingram yes, Spark or one of those? CreateSpace. Have you um, looked to see if it's on um, barnesandnoble.com? It has a tendency just to show up if you've got a CreateSpace title. You know, I haven't looked for a while. I don't sell that many books outside of Amazon. So I haven't looked at, at my Nook sales for a while. Um, okay. And I haven't actually looked at the sales page on Barnes & Noble for a while. I guess that's bad to admit. <laughs> no, no. I mean, really, Amazon, if you focus everything on Amazon, you, you, you're you focusing on where 90% of ebook sales happen. Right. Um, it, why not? And if people are looking for a book, they, they'll they go to the bookstore, maybe. Otherwise, mm -hmm. they'll go to Amazon. I mean, right. that's, that's how it works. Um, do you feel weird promoting your first book? I mean, you have to because it's a series. Right. But you don't get a dime of that. It, 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 they already paid you your advance. Uh, and obviously I'm projecting on you what I sort of sometimes feel. I, I mean, I don't mind promoting it because I'm, I'm still proud of it. Like, you know, even if it wasn't as, ex, you know, um, commercially successful as I wanted it to be, I still feel like it's, it's a success in that, you know, it's a good story. Um, I guess, so, you know, I don't feel weird promoting it. The only thing I feel weird about is the fact that it doesn't match the rest of my books. But okay. again, unless I want to spend a bunch of money buy the all the remaining books in the warehouse, <laughs> right? then I, I, until the rights come back to me, there's not really anything I can do about that. So you're expecting the rights to revert to you. Eventually, eventually. What are you basing that on? Um... Well, I mean, did they did they say that indicate that would happen? My understanding is with ebooks uh, being a, such a player now, and with you know like espresso espresso, how you say the 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 book machines that'll just print them up, boom boom boom. That uh -huh. publishers are very they're loath to revert rights because even if it's a sh little trickle, they can still they don't have to print anything you know in bulk. They can still they can go pod with it. They can just. They can they can say if you want this book you have to come to us and get the ebook. Right. Well, we um, my agent checked on that for me, okay. and she said that as soon as it was considered out of print, that most likely, and it's out of print when everything sells out. Okay. So, um, but that that would probably take years. So I don't know. At some point, I can probably try to buy them back. 
I'll tell you this. I looked on, I was just curious if you had a similar thing that I did for a while, which was um, a reseller was selling my stuff on Amazon. Uh-huh. It wasn't fulfilled by Amazon. It is again, somehow, I don't know why. Um, but my, my first two books with HarperCollins, they were um, fulfilled by like, you know, like Bob's books, you know, and Bob's garage or whatever. Uh, and I went on okay. your Amazon page and the paperback says that it's unavailable. Like, like they're out of stock right now. Um, oh, it's been that way for like nine months. <laughs> it's been temporarily out of stock for nine months. And I'm like, really? You don't want to try to like sell these on Amazon? So they're in their warehouse. They have, you, you've confirmed that they're, they haven't sold out of the print run They're They have them. Oh, I'm sure they haven't. I'm sure they haven't. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> Isn't that weird? See, that, that tells you how important I am, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but they want to free up space and they want to make money. That's, that is a little odd. Um, my, yeah. my assumption with my stuff was for a while that, that they cleared up, cleared out their, their, uh, warehouse by just selling, you know, like, Hey, you, you want to buy, you know, the last 2,300 books of, of this print run, yeah. uh, for pennies on the yeah. dollar. Um, I'm not sure about that anymore. I noticed though, mm-hmm. that when my sequel to playing Saint came out, it did not do great. It had a good like launch, a good beginning, and then it kind of tapered uh-huh. off in a in a semi disappointing way. It's picking up again now. You know, you you can't obsess over these things, right? But I noticed right. that my first book, the sales went through the roof. Um, oh yeah, for quite a while, and I'm like, huh. Uh-huh. Well, so this is not selling. But does the fact that the first one's selling a bunch mean this is going to later sell or what? I had the same thing about a week ago. I noticed there were several copies of the of the ebook because my Amazon rang up, which when you're traditionally published, really that's the only indicator that you have that books are selling. You look at your Amazon rank. Or you look at that statement they send you that, you know, like a nuclear physicist couldn't decode for you, the royalty statement. Oh, right. But you have to wait like six months right, to get that. Right. Well, anyway, I had a little spike in the first principle. And I thought, ooh, well, maybe that means I'll sell some of the others. Well, when you're indie published, you can go into Kindle, look at your, da- you know, the KDP mm-hmm. and look at your dashboard. It's oh, it's right hours. there. <laughs> yes, I did. Nice. <laughs> Score. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, who knows sometimes what causes little spikes here and there. That was kind of funny for me. But, yeah, I don't I don't know what, what caused pe- several people to buy them. Yeah, and, and people, you know, can retweet an uh, interview you did a year and a half ago or two and a half years ago and people can just pick up on that. It's, it's, it's weird. You can't reverse engineer it. And and we don't know as indie authors um, or hybrid authors or whatever we are, but neither do the big six know how to make that magic or they would do it every time. No, they don't. It it looks to me from your website, like you're also doing like micro fiction. I do. Um, I've done quite a bit of story, several stories for Splickety Mm -hmm. magazine. And I, I love writing flash fiction. It's it's quick. <laughs> it's it's fun. And, you know, the way I tend to write, I'm not overly wordy with my writing. So it's not terribly hard for me to, you know, create a 700-word story and then kind of just manipulate it around until it fits their exact word count. Um, so I've had some fun with that over the last couple of years. I've heard from tons of people, like, this is such an important exercise and it's so fun and it's so... And I just, I can't get my mind around it. Um, I love bl- just bl- tons of words, tons and tons of words. <laughs> and I hate editing. Uh-huh. And and I'm jealous of people who who are so concise and compact with how they can produce good prose that they actually 
You know, they're like, yeah, oh, my, my whole story is uh, less than a thousand words. Okay. <laughs> uh, are you going to keep doing that? Is that something that, that you did for a while to get the, you know, the well primed again? Or is that something you want to keep doing? You know, I'll probably keep doing it if, as long as I, you know, they have, Splickety puts out themes for their different magazines. And as long as there's a theme that I'm interested in writing for, I, you know, I'm willing to write up a story and submit it and see if they take it. I have one coming out um, in February here. They'll re- probably release soon. And uh, so, and then one in March as well. So I, I enjoy writing flash fiction. And and you say you're jealous of people who can squeeze it down. Sometimes I'm jealous of people who are so wordy that they, they need to cut their drafts down. Because usually my first drafts of my novels are way too short. And then I have to figure out okay. what I'm adding. So... We can all envy each other. If they ever have a theme that's like uh, priests who carry guns, I'll be like, oh, that's right up my alley. And then maybe I'll. Yeah, that would be perfect. <laughs> and by the way, I, I I do listen to your podcast and I, I did read your playing St. All Souls Day sequel and I loved it. Oh, so thank you. I, I did want to add that. Well, don't bother to leave a uh, review on Amazon because as I'm sure you have discovered, they will run our names through an algorithm and be like, oh, you have interacted in some way and then delete the review. Uh-huh. That that's right. I in fact I just don't review books for anybody anymore for anything. I, I really don't feel safe doing that, especially since I'm a publisher now. Because if I lost my Amazon account, it would be very bad. Oh, have you heard of that happening? I have heard of that happening. That I mean, there's like major fraud if somebody really lo- ends up losing their account permanently. But I don't want anything frozen or shut down. Or I just trying to follow the rules. So it's like Mark Driscoll level of manipulation and then they'll they'll uh, take you down. But otherwise, I've, I've only heard of people. Here's the thing that's frustrating. Um, a, a woman on Twitter said, I just discovered your books and I love them. And I left a great review on Amazon. No, no, scratch that. I said, why don't you leave that on Amazon? Just, uh-huh. just what you just said. I'd love that. Uh, and so she said, okay, I did. And then, you know, after right after a book comes out, you kind of obsess over some of these things and try not to. So every two or three days, I'd look and see how many reviews I had, what the rank was. And I said, oh, she left her review. And I read it like six hours later. I said, Aaron, to my wife, look at this review. And it was gone. Oh, never met this person in my life except for an interaction on Twitter. And I'm going, what is a review if it's not like it was taken down for being biased? And what is a review if it's not a newly biased person who, if they weren't biased, if it's an unbiased thing, they'd just be like, uh, it's a book. That's it. You know, three stars, I guess. That's so frustrating because you, ne- you never know, it seems like. I've had reviews disappear too, but I, from from my books, I don't know why. But Yeah, well, the, Amazon is faceless and controls us all. And I have an Echo Dot, so they listen to everything I say. Um, <laughs> you are a teacher, right? Yes. That's your, your primary. Yes, I, teach, I teach seventh grade language arts. So seventh graders who like to write probably connect with you. Have they, are they the, the demographic for that first trilogy and have any of them read your, your novels? A few of them have. And um, what I found is that I think, as I said before, it's a little bit much for seventh and eighth grade as far as some of the themes and some of the things that happen. I mean, there's nothing immoral. It's just you're talking about pregnancy and pregnancy termination and things like that. So really, it's probably more suited for high school and up. Uh, But there are a few who have read it and 
a few of them have told me, yes, I like that book. It must be kind of cool to be, you know, I don't know your teacher had a a book published with, you know, a major publisher and everything and, you know, finaled in an award. Um, So right now you're working on, tell tell me about the thing you're working on now and uh, when we can expect to see it. And then all that standard stuff of like, how do we find you online and blah, blah. Okay. So my newest series is, well, it's going to start with a book called Deadly Harvest. And it's a mystery. And basically, um, we just finished the marketing copy for it. So it's all Georgia Winston wanted was to fall in love. But life, of course, had other plans. And part of that is she finds a body in her field while she's harvesting. Ooh. Uh, Sweepings, because she's a farmer. Nice. <laughs> so... Yes. And so then she's launched into this whole um, ordeal of trying to find the killer. And it brings up memories of her father's murder um, eight years earlier. So um, it's, it's been really fun. It's, it's more of a, you know, it's a murder mystery, but it's, it's a little bit more lighthearted than the futuristic, scary dystopian <laughs> that I done in the previous series. So it's a, it's very different. And I just really enjoyed it because she's a 30 something. She has the trials and tribulations of being single and dating. And I, that's so my life. So there's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of um, inspiration for my own life, I think, in this in this story. Did you mention if it's if it's contemporary or historical? It is contemporary. OK, very cool. Very cool. Um, and obviously you're at Marisha Schrock. Marisha. Marisha. Marisha <laughs> Schrock. <laughs> um. No, I'm not drinking. It's Ash Wednesday over here. I'm, I'm, uh, Marissa Schrock.com. Schrock has no C in it, right? It's S H R O C K. It has a C. It has one C. It has one C. Thank you for noticing that. I don't know how many times I, I, people don't notice that. And I'm always saying S H R O C K. So thank you. Yes. It's, <laughs> Have you thought you about, uh, also registering, you know, different spellings of your name and having them redirect to the right one? I've thought about that myself. Yeah, that might be something to consider. <laughs> yeah, so I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of that, Marissa Schrock. So and I remember I signed up for an author newsletter of yours probably a couple of years ago, and I got like okay. a short story as a little, uh, uh, you know, reward. Is that still a thing? Yeah, that is still a thing. It's a little sci-fi story called The Abduction. And here in probably about three or four months, I'm actually going to um, offer another short story to my newsletter subscribers in advance of the release of Deadly Harvest. Um, It's to introduce my readers to the characters that they'll meet in that new series. Isn't it fun to be able to do that kind of thing? Um, It is fun. I enjoy that. I I suggested uh, this crossover story idea that I had to my publisher uh, between, Mm -hmm. I said, like right right before the new book comes out, that way people who like the first one will say, I want to read that. And then we'll get introduced to characters from the second one. And they were like, yeah, no, that, that doesn't work unless you're, you know, a mega bestseller already. No one cares about your short stories. So I put it out myself and Mm -hmm. I was like, on the contrary, quite a few people have cared enough uh, to buy it. Or when I offer it for free, it goes, you know, it was up, I think it was number three in the free Kindle store for a while. Why won't they try these things? I don't know. But when you go indie, you can, you can do it. Yeah, that's that's definitely the beauty of indie. You can try, you can adjust, you can you can see immediately what marketing strategies work, and that's what I like most about it. 
That's a good note to end on. So thank you very much for your time, Marissa. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Clinch, a novel, chapter 26. Why can't we just call him? Judith asked. They were crouched behind the filter of the Dufresne family's above-ground swimming pool, which was loudly chugging away, although Trent wondered to what end, as the pool's water always seemed to maintain an off-putting green tinge. He's grounded from his phone, Trent explained. We kind of took his mom's van without permission. It's a whole thing. Anyway, they don't have a landline anymore, so we do it this way. He cocked back his arm and chucked a pebble at Jason's second-story bedroom window, the only light coming from the rear of the house. The pebble went low. He tried again, this time losing track of the projectile in the darkness mid-flight. I can hit that window, Judith said. No sling. You'll shatter it. I can throw it. Yeah, right, Trent said. You throw like a- You say like a girl and you'll regret it. No, that's not it. Not, not enough like a girl. You're like one of those crazy escaped service bots on a Wally. Just give me a second. I got this. He chucked another pebble and heard the telltale sound of stone on glass. A moment later, Jason's face appeared in the window. Trent waved. Throwing the window wide, Jason shouted, Gee! Oh, thank God, man! I'm losing my mind over here! Come on up! I'm playing Carjack 7! Shh! Your parents! Trent stage whispered. Now nah, it's their anniversary! He called. So that's gross. They're out, like, whining and dining and dancing and stuff. I, I don't want to think about it. You want to go for a swim? You still have a suit here. No, thanks, man. We actually need your help with something back at my place. Who's we? Me and Judith. Jason nodded thoughtfully, visibly weighing his options, then announced, We can take my mom's van. At Trent's instruction, Jason removed the seats from the minivan and pulled it around the corner where Trent and Judith quickly loaded first the iron horse and then themselves into the back, before the whole party headed up to Charles Weebus Park, a dilapidated municipal lot a couple miles past Trent's house, whose only park-like feature was a tetherball post with a chain but no ball. I hate this place, Jason said, looking out the window shiftily. You know, a guy hung himself from that pole, right? During the 70s? People see stuff out here. That's an urban legend, Trent said. No, it's not. His great-nephew was on my flag football team. Jason peered off into the darkness. Seriously, wh why do we have to talk here? Judith clicked on the dome light in the back. Because I know it scares you, and I find that amusing, she said. Well, that's just rude. Jason crawled over the console to join them. I mean, it's no laughing matter when it... He gaped at Judith, seeing her clearly for the first time. What the heck are you supposed to... It's a long story, Trent interrupted. For another time. Judith nodded her agreement. Just know that we're letting you into the inner circle, she said. It's a privilege. You tell anyone about this, and I'll kill you. Yeah, totally, Jason agreed, his eyes darting down to Judith's boots and back up to the wig. So, what's this secret mission? We're gonna egg Fisher's house? Eh? Nut-knock the place? Pig-whistle him? Slip the fish? Oh, wait, I got it. We could sneak into the school and upper deck his office bathroom. Let it stew till Wednesday. Can you imagine? He grinned from Trent to Judith and back. Oh, man, it feels good to have human contact again. It's been too long. You've been grounded for like three days, Trent said. Oh, I know. 
and I've felt every minute. Look, it's really quite simple, Judith told him. There's a guy guarding Trent's house. He's looking for Trent and possibly Chief Marsh. We just need you to approach him and... She sighed. Is there a problem, Jason? What? What? What do you mean? You keep looking at me like that. Jason shrugged. I'm sorry. It's just I never noticed before. Noticed what? You're so hot! Judith threw a sidelong glance at Trenton. Control your boy, or I will. Trent chuckled. You don't want that, man. Trust me. Dude, I'm going to be honest. I don't know what I want right now. Yeah, this was a bad idea, Judith said. No, wait, Jason practically shouted. I'm good. I'm cool. I can't go back home. I will literally lose my mind. What do you want me to do with this guy at Trent's place? Knock him out? Roofie him? He pointed in the direction of Trent's borrowed bow hanging from the handlebars of the motorbike. Poison-tipped arrow, maybe? Just talk to him, Trent said. Just talk to him. Yeah, ask if I'm home, when I'll be back, that kind of stuff. Keep him busy while we slip in the back door to the basement. I could do that, he grinned. And what are you two guys doing? We're going through a secret tunnel to Zoe's house to find a clue that will lead us to Benjamin Cassell's treasure. If that's a euphemism, Jason said, I've never heard it. <sighs> Shut up, Jason. Trent and Judith bailed out a block from the parsonage and once again approached along the hedge of his neighbor's house. Jason pulled up the driveway slowly, loud rap music blaring from the open window of the van. He pulled right up to the garage door, the van's bumper just about kissing it, killed the engine, and hopped out. This might actually work, Judith whispered. Never thought Jason would actually serve a purpose. He's a good guy, Trent said. No, he's not. Yeah... I know. Jason was three steps out from the van when Connor Dupree came lumbering down from the porch to meet him. He wore a tight wife beater, revealing thick arms, torso, and neck, all covered with ink. Skulls, Harleys, tribal designs. On his sternum, spilling up onto his throat, a mermaid somehow straddled Detroit Lions logo. Can I help you with something? He asked. Yeah, I'm looking for Trent, Jason said. Trenton Marsh? He lives here. Yeah, he's not home. I'll tell him you stop by. In the bushes, Trent whispered, Okay, let's go. Not yet, Judith cautioned. Do you even know who I am? Jason asked. Am I supposed to? The big guy cracked his neck, the sound of which actually echoed off the garage. Well, no, but I mean, how can you tell him I stopped by if you don't know who I am? So who are you? You know what? I'll just leave him a note, Jason said, making for the front door. Just one more second, Judith breathed. Whoa! They heard Jason shout. Hands off there, tiny! I don't know you! What are you even doing here? Wait, Trent said, just as Judith seemed about to take off. It's no good. We've got to abort. Why? I just remembered. There's a motion-activated security light on the back of the house. It's super bright. You can see it from the road. Cats and coyotes keep setting it off. That thing's not even real, Jason protested from the front of the house. You telling me you're a cop? Trent's dad hired you? I mean, no offense, but you look like an ad for hepatitis. We gotta get him out of there, Trent said. That guy's gonna kill him. No, this is our one shot. Where's the bulb? It's the floodlight right up under the gutter. Why? She pulled the sling from her boot and another small metal ball from the belt compartment. No, it's too risky, Trent protested. If you miss, you'll trigger the light. I don't miss, she said. 
Well, do you at least know when he's going to be home? Jason asked. He was practically shouting. Judith began swinging the sling in tight circles, creating a dull roar as it cut through the air, drowning out the growl of Connor's reply. Yeah, fine, Jason was saying. But let me ask you one more thing. Does all that metal stuff in your face hurt? Because it looks like you should be going, ah, like all the time. The light bulb disintegrated with a tinkle of glass. Ow, Jason cried. Let go of me. My dad's a lawyer, you know. Judith dropped another steel ball into the sling and took a step toward the front yard, her face carved out of stone. Jeez, I'm leaving, Jason announced. A moment later, they heard the van door, the ignition, and the rap music fading off into the night. Trent silently unlocked the door, and the two of them slipped down into his bedroom. They counted to three and hoisted the slab of pine away from the opening. For the first time, Judith peered down the inky black tunnel, disappearing into forever, and smiled. No, there's nothing weird going on in Clinch Rock, she said. Okay. You're just being paranoid, Judith. Uh-huh, point made, loud and clear. Or maybe, she said, pulling a small, high-powered flashlight from her belt and clicking it on, maybe you're all just really gullible. If you don't shut up, I'm going to kiss you again. Don't you dare. She began moving down the tunnel, sling in hand. At the mouth of the passage, Trenton noticed a large box marked Archery, which he'd pulled out a week earlier in anticipation of a morning shoot with his dad. Dumping the camp's bow to the floor, he retrieved his own compound bow and a fistful of additional arrows, then rushed to catch up with Judith. The tunnel seemed twice as long as it had the first time he traversed it, giving Trent plenty of time to second-guess all this. Sure, Judith had been right about a few things, but that didn't mean their best course of action was amateur, vigilante shenanigans. They could still call the sheriff's office, or the state police, or have Jason drive them to the hospital and lay it all out for Dad. Before he could reach a conclusion, though, Judith slowed to a stop in front of him. Her light shone on a rough-cut staircase, which led up to a plaster wall, a large chunk of which had been smashed away, revealing the backside of a tall bookshelf. You ready for this? Judith asked, excitement in her eyes. Not a bit. She flashed her slightly crooked teeth and said, Just stay close to me. They quietly pushed the bookshelf away from the opening and crawled into the dark house, staying low. Where's the letter? Judith asked. Up here, in the parlor. Judith scoffed. Of course Zoe has a parlor. Trent led the way to the six-foot display, now containing three open pages from letters to Cassell, as well as the envelope bearing the name Reverend Jeremiah Wolcott. Phillips or standard screws? Judith asked, handing over the flashlight and digging through a pouch on her belt. Trent examined the exhibit. Oh, neither. It's one of those star-shaped things. She quit digging. Crud. Guess we're gonna have to break the glass. Yeah, that might not be so easy. It's crazy thick. I got it, she said. Step back. Before Trent could object, she spun her sling three times over and released. The exhibit disintegrated and a shower of broken glass sloughed to the ground, releasing the antique letters from its grip. That was so loud, Trent said, sifting gingerly through the shards of glass. Yeah, Judith agreed. Grab the letter and be careful. She peeked out the front window. Well, Taylor's still sitting on his car. I think we're good. So what's it say? Sean had just finished another circuit of the house and pulled himself with great difficulty back onto the hood of his firebird when he heard the pop from inside. 
Almost sounded like a small caliber gunshot. He looked at the twenty-two rifle in his hands and spat. Stupid Marsh had knocked his favorite gun off into the woods up at camp, and stupid Mike wouldn't let him take ten minutes to find it, and now here he was with this glorified pea shooter. The thought of Trenton Marsh made his foot ache all the more. It was getting worse with each passing hour, screaming with every step. Sean pulled his phone out and scrolled down to Officer Terrell's number. If he was possibly going up against an armed intruder with nothing but a twenty-two and a gimpy foot, best to have some backup. You sure you don't want to head back to my place and read it? Trent asked. Or even wait until we're safe in Jason's van? Well, what if the treasure's here in the mansion? I don't want to have to come back. Good point. Trent unfolded the letter, which filled half the page with penmanship that was much easier to decipher than Walcott's. He read, Brother Walcott, my friend and my guide, who led me from the darkness of avarice to the light of the gospel. Grace and peace to you. By the time you receive this letter, you will have laid eyes on me for the last time. I'm leaving all of this behind in favor of a simple life, taking up my cross each morning and laying down my head each night with the knowledge that I have served my fellow man to the glory of my God. Please do not take offense that I leave no forwarding address. I think it best that no one from my old life should find me, not even you, though I hope to write to you again in due course. The reason for this letter is twofold. First, to inform you of my decision to deed my house and everything in it to my bookkeeper and good friend, Hans Wellick. He has been loyal to me for years, and it would not be right to do away with my entire fortune and leave him nothing. But please know that while Wellick is my Eleazar, you are my Isaac. And this brings me to the primary design of this correspondence, to direct you to the monies I have left for the benefit of the church and the men and women I have long exploited. Repentance requires not only a change of heart, but a change in direction, restitution, and having lived by the passions of the flesh for so long, I am eager to be free of the fortune I wasted my life in amassing. If you will use it to minister to the lumbermen, cooks, log drivers, and laborers who served in my camps and mines, as well as their wives and children, I will be forever in your debt. I pray you still recall the hint I laid for you two weeks ago as to the situation of this cache of worldly mammon, that detail awaiting a locale. I will not repeat it here, out of fear that this letter should fall into the hands of a weaker soul. Bearing in mind the former clue, you will find what I have left you in the place where we first met. I confess that on that day I thought of you as a superstitious fool, but now I see that you blah 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 saved my soul, blah blah blah. That's it, Judith! It's beneath the fire wherever Walcott and Cassell first met. So, where is that? No idea, but obviously that's why they wanted the diary so bad. For sure, Wolcott would have made a note of meeting one of the richest, most powerful men in the state. Judith frowned. You've been working on that thing for a week, and you've barely scratched the surface. Yeah, but now we can narrow it down. Trent folded the letter into the diary, which he slipped into the waistband of his shorts at the small of his back, before getting down on his knees and sifting through the broken glass. Each piece silkscreened with a bit of text or photo, like the world's most dangerous jigsaw puzzle. What are you doing? Judith asked. Before you broke the display into a billion little shards, it used to say when they met. I think it was February. I don't know what year. Oh, dang it! Trent felt the blood trickling down his knee, pooling amongst the broken glass. I'll be right back, he said, rising to his feet and hobbling toward the kitchen. You keep looking. Carefully. At the kitchen sink, he wet a dish towel and used it to wipe away the blood and tiny grains of glass embedded in the wound. You okay? Judith called from the front of the house, careful to keep her voice down. 
Then, without waiting for an answer, she announced, I found one that says R-L-Y-F-E-B. That's got to be early February. Just need a year. Trent put pressure on the cut for a few more seconds and then had a look at it. It was still bleeding a bit, but it wasn't deep. He rifled quietly through some drawers, looking for a first aid kit or a box of band-aids. Instead, he came upon a roll of duct tape, which he used to affix a damp sock from his backpack onto his knee. Judith appeared in the doorway, a grin on her face. Got it, she said. Early February, 1893. As he reached for the diary, Trent smiled too, but then he heard Sean Taylor's voice from behind Judith saying, Like a statue, Blue. Hands where I can see him. I'm not going to tell you again, Officer Cash warned. Shut up. I'm talking to Jesse, Adam said, who happens to outrank you, by the way, as do I. Cash said nothing, just turned up the volume of the old TV. Come on, Jesse, the chief continued. There's been no due process here. Did a magistrate actually issue an arrest warrant? If so, when? I haven't been given a phone call. No one has notified my son what's going on. There's been zero talk of a lawyer or even what I'm being charged with. Has anyone even called Cooper's office? Think about it, Jesse. He could tell that Jesse was thinking about it. Isn't it obvious what they're doing here? They bought into Brian Greene's old buried treasure shtick and started tearing apart historical buildings looking for the loot. And once a building became a crime scene, they could take their time, methodically searching the place without drawing suspicion. They even brought in that drain camera thing. And where was I? At the church, at class. I dropped the ball here, and I'm sorry. But that shouldn't mean they get away with it. Jesse finally looked up, meeting Adam's gaze. Cash is right, he said. The prisoner is not to speak unless spoken to. Judith gestured with her eyes for Trent to leave the kitchen out the other door. Clearly, the plan was to double back around, flank Sean. He nodded and grabbed up his backpack as Judith turned to face their enemy. What do you want? She said. Slipping out through the old servant's entrance, he heard Sean say, Oh, it's you. Terrell's going to be happy to get his hands on you, honey. That was his boat you sunk. Trent came out through Brian's office, silently moving into the parlor, praying he wouldn't hit a squeaky board. There, his bow propped up in the corner. He plucked it up and knocked an arrow onto the string. Man, what happened to you? Judith asked. You look terrible. Don't worry about me, Sean said. I never give up. Unless I'm giving up, giving up. Wait a minute, Judith said. I know you. You're that guy in his 20s that still comes to high school parties, right? Just shut your mouth. You're going to be in the back of a squad car in 10 minutes. Trent entered the dining room and found himself looking at Sean's back. He felt the breath sucked from his lungs like he was jumping over the falls again. Sean had a cell phone in one hand, making a call, and a rifle in the other, pointed right at Judith. Trent lowered the bow. They were beat here. No way would he risk Judith getting shot. This whole thing had gone way too far. And now, it was over. Oh, hi, Trent, Judith said, waving at him. Sean wheeled, and Judith lunged at him, stomping on his injured foot. Sean shrieked and dropped the gun to the floor. Judith went for it, but instead caught a backhand from Sean, spinning her 180 degrees. He fell to the ground, reaching for the gun. Trent drew back the arrow and let it fly, piercing the faded crown of Sean's CFB tattoo. The young man ground his teeth, cursing and grunting at the shaft of the arrow protruding from his forearm. Trent popped another into place and leveled the bow at Sean. 
Next one goes a little closer to home, he said. Believe me? Sean nodded. Good. Now back away from the gun. Sean scooted back on his butt. You shot me, he said. Twice! Trent shrugged. You hit my girlfriend. You're lucky I didn't put it straight through. I could have. Judith was back on her feet. I'd say you hit like a girl, she said with a smirk. But that would be an insult to girls everywhere, wouldn't it? She reached into a compartment in her belt and pulled out a heavy-duty bright blue zip tie. Now, I'm afraid I'm going to have to restrain you. Two minutes later, Sean secured to a radiator and his gun in less than working order. They were rushing back down the tunnel toward the parsonage. Judith was silent until the end was in sight, the yellow glow of Trent's bedroom off in the distance. I can't believe you said that, she muttered. Said what? You hit my girlfriend? Trent came to a stop. Oh, um, sorry. I mean, I didn't mean to assume anything. I just thought that... Do you not know how secret identities work? She demanded. Seriously? You don't think they could put it together? Well, they can now. A dozen objections formed in Trent's mind, but he ignored them all. Sorry, he said. Won't happen again. Good. They covered the rest of the tunnel in a matter of seconds and spilled out into the bedroom. They were three steps in when they saw Officer Terrell sitting casually on the end of Trent's bed, gun drawn. Drop the bow, Marsh, he said, standing up and nearly hitting his head on the drop ceiling. You two brats are coming with me. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2018, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel, copyright 2018, Gut Check Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me by email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, the way God intended. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you might want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Gut 